Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the cusp. Test, test, test. Is this the right way to podcast? <coughs> test, test, test. Is this the right way to podcast? Podcast. Thank you all for joining us tonight, and it's my pleasure to welcome a close friend, UC San Diego's Distinguished Professor Emeritus in Psychiatry, Joel Dimsdale. I'm sure many of you know Joel and his incredible scholarship and service to UC San Diego. He joined UC San Diego back in 1985 after serving on the faculty of the Harvard Medical School, and even in his retirement, continues to consult and engage in research. In addition to being a respected scholar, Joel's an incredible friend and supporter of the library. And in fact, just last year, Joel donated a collection of Holocaust survivor interviews that he collected in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And I'm glad to report that just this past week, we finished digitizing those uh, collections. Joel is with us tonight to speak about his new book, Dark Persuasion, a history of brainwashing from Pavlov to social media. In this book, Joel traces the evolution of brainwashing from its beginnings in torture and religious conversion into the age of neuroscience and social media. I just finished reading the book this past weekend and just am so excited to have us with us, to have Joel with us tonight. And so with that, Joel, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thanks, Eric. Uh, thank you very much. 
it's really a pleasure to be here at Geisel tonight. Um, and I'd like to give a shout out to Geisel and all the research libraries in the world. Uh, these are repositories of learning and wisdom that are deeply valuable for our society. And I'd also like to thank all of you uh, who've uh, joined us this evening. You know, when I tell people that I've been interested in brainwashing, the typical response is, Joel, this, is, uh, this reeks of musty Cold War stuff and bad science and ethically challenged scientists. Well, that's partially true, but it is not uh, a it's not something that is only from a hundred years ago. Brainwashing or coercive persuasion continues to be active uh, and to, to develop even a century later. And yes, there were some uh, bad scientists involved, but there were also Nobel laureates involved. And some were ethically challenged. But I think the story of brainwashing is really the history of those individuals and the social forces they were caught up in. So I'd like to give you an overview of my book by highlighting some of the 20th century events where brainwashing has been evoked. Throughout this talk, please consider two questions. Was this event a manifestation of brainwashing? And what aspects of the event shaped your opinion? Well, in my previous book, Anatomy of Malice, I focused on understanding how state leaders could orchestrate malice on a genocidal level. Subsequently, I started wondering about how a population could be persuaded to follow such a path. Were they inherently murderous, as Daniel Goldhagen suggested? Were they hoodwinked by propaganda? Or were they brainwashed? And what did that term even mean? Where did it come from? Even despite my... Hello, hello, everybody. All right, all right, all right, all right. All right, all right, all right. So we're back in business with CIA's role in the study of UFOs between 1947 and 1990. And there's a really nice uh, report compiled by Gerald K. Haynes 
you can find it uh, if you study if you search on Google for uh, UFO reports from US government it's the absolute uh, first result on the second page it says CIA's role in the study of UFOs and it's more like of a highlight more like of a background uh, why when and how did the CIA get involved in uh, promoting um rather hiding and then uh, later promoting uh, other things as being uh, explanations for UFOs um let me just read a passage that will highlight this background so first let's get a little bit of background music for uh, we don't like silence that much let me up let me just open my mix software that plays music in the background I don't know if you can hear but it's quite raining here that's just the sound of rain on my studio window all right there we go so background the emergence in 1947 of the cold war confrontation between the united states and the soviet union also saw the first wave of ufo sightings the first report of a flying saucer over the united states came on 24th june 1947 when kenneth arnold a private pilot and reputable businessman while looking for a downed plane sighted nine disc-shaped objects near mount rainier in washington traveling at an estimated speed of over 1000 miles per hour arnold's report was followed by a flood of additional sightings including reports from a military and civil pilots and air traffic controllers all over the u.s in 1948 air force general nathan twinning head of the air technical service command established project sign initially named project saucer to collect collate evaluate and distribute within the government all information relating to such sightings on the premise that ufos might be real and of national security concern the technical intelligence division of the air material command amc at wright field later wright patterson air force base in dayton ohio assumed control of project sign and began its work on 23 january 1948 although at first fearful that the objects might be soviet secret weapons the air force soon concluded that ufos were real but easily explained and not extraordinary
The Air Force report found that almost all sightings stemmed from one or more of three causes. Mass hysteria and hallucinations, hoax, or misinterpretation of known objects. Nevertheless, the report recommended continued military intelligence control over the investigation of all sightings and did not rule out the possibility of extraterrestrial phenomena. Amid mounting UFO sightings, the Air Force continued to collect and evaluate UFO data in the late 1940s under a new project called Grudge, which tried to alleviate public anxiety over UFOs via a public relations campaign designed to persuade the public that UFOs constituted nothing unusual or ordinary. UFO sightings were explained as balloons, conventional aircraft, planets, meteors, optical illusions, solar reflections, or even large hailstones. Grudge officials found no evidence in UFO sightings or advanced foreign weapons designed or development, and they concluded that UFOs did not threaten U.S. security. They recommended that the project be reduced in scope because the very existence of Air Force officials' interests encouraged people to believe in UFOs and contributed to a war hysteria atmosphere. On 27th of November, 1949, the Air Force announced the project's termination. And if we skip 60 or so years, maybe even 70 years into the future, which is today, we can see that there is a U.S. Unexplained Phenomena Task Force. So we found this unclassified preliminary assessment of unidentified aerial phenomena as of 25th June 2021 on the website of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and now it's a public thing. They admittedly saying that they have a an unidentified aerial phenomena task force and they're briefing high state officials about the state of things and whether or not the phenomena pose a threat. It cannot be more in our faces.
And uh, continuing to read, but now from the said report. Subtitle, Executive Summary. The limited amount of high-quality reporting on unidentified aerial phenomena, UAP, hampers our ability to draw firm conclusions about the nature or intent of UAP. The Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force, UAPTF, considered a, a, ra, a rather range <clears throat> considered a range of information on UAP described in US military and IC, so intelligence community. So the CIA is still involved, even though they said in 1949 that they concluded all their interests in the matter. Make no mistake about it, the CIA is wherever ET is. But because the reporting lacked sufficient specificity, ultimately recognized that a unique tailored reporting process was required to provide sufficient data for analysis of UAP events. As a result, the UAP task force concentrated its review on reports that occurred between 2004 and 2021, the majority of which are a result of this new tailored process to better capture UAP events through formalized reporting. So what they're, what they're admitting to is basically that they now have a formalized process through which they're encouraging everyone to report such UAP events or phenomena. More than that, they're saying most of the UAP reported probably do represent physical objects, given that a majority of UAP were registered across multiple sensors. So to include radar, infrared, electro-optical, weapon seekers and visual observation that's their direct line of sight so people within the military within the u.s government are constantly observing stuff with their bare naked eyes that constitute unidentified aerial phenomena so it's out there they're admitting it publicly on dni.gov, the website of the Director of National Intelligence. They're briefing their high, states, high state officials about this. Continuing. In a limited number of incidents, UAP reportedly appeared to exhibit unusual flight characteristics. These observations could be the result of sensor errors, spoofing or observer misperception and require additional rigorous analysis. There are probably multiple types of UAP requiring different explanations based on the range of appearances and behaviors described in the available reporting. I uh, Need I remind you what they mean by UAP? They mean that something is physical. So they're, they're just 
they just admitted that most of the UAP reported probably do represent physical objects, since one of the five different type of sensors that they use is radar, infrared, and weapon seekers. So when they mean UAP, they mean something physical in the air that's unexplained. And they mean multiple things, because they just said there are probably multiple types of UAP, and that requires multiple different explanations. Our analysis of the data supports the cons construct that if and when individual UAP incidents are resolved, they will fall into one of five potential explanatory categories. So now they've formalized this reporting into such a degree that they have five categories so one is airborne clutter another is natural atmospheric phenomena next is usg or us industry developmental programs that's the us government developmental weapon programs of course foreign adversary systems and then the latter being a catch-all other category. So, UAP clearly pose a safety of flight issue and may pose a challenge to U.S. national security. This is written in an official report that you can find by searching for this on Google, preliminary assessment UAP. It will be the first result. It will be on an official website coming from dni.gov. And you can click on it. There's a nine page PDF from which I'm, right, um, I'm reading right now. And the director of the national, the director of the national intelligence of the United States government is saying that those UAP clearly pose a safety risk and a challenge to the national security. Safety concerns primarily center on aviators contending with an increasingly cluttered air domain. UAP would also represent a national security challenge if they are foreign adversary collection platforms or provide evidence a potential adversary has developed either a breakthrough or disruptive technology. And you will see why they mean breakthrough or disruptive, because they cannot see how the UAPs are being powered. There's an unidentified power source that allows them to do incredible, unexplained, outside of physical known rules features. Let me skip this part. Going to available reporting, largely inconclusive. That's a subtitle. And then over two paragraphs later says, after carefully considering this information, the UAP task force 
focused on reports that involved UAP largely witnessed firsthand by military aviators and that were collected from systems we considered to be reliable. These reports describe incidents that occurred between 2004 and 2021, with the majority coming in the last two years as the new reporting mechanism became better known to the military aviation community. So they've been trying to, to push this agenda within their own ranks that they have to report everything, even though people, they themselves state in the same report, and I'm reading, that people are hesitant. They don't want to, to be considered crazy or, you know, conspiracy theorists. And they, admittedly, they uh, refrain. They abstain from uh, filling reports. We were able to identify one reported UAP with high confidence. In that case, we identified the object as a large deflating balloon. The others remained unexplained, so <laughs> they're admitting that. They have 144 reports originated from the U.S. government's sources, and one of them was a balloon. Of these 143, which remain, 80 reports involved observation with multiple sensors. Let, let me remind you which the sensors are. Okay, multiple sensors to include radar, infrared, electro-optical, weapon seekers, and visual observation. Of those five sensors, visual observation may be the least reliable. So, most reports described UAP as objects that interrupted pre-planned training or other military activity. So it couldn't be more in their faces. UAP happening right in their faces. UAP collection challenges. Social cultural stigmas and sensor limitations remain obstacles to collecting data on UAP. Well, I wonder who made the stigma into what it is today. 
Although some technical challenges, such as how to appropriately filter out radar clutter to ensure safety or flight, safety of flight or for military and civilian aircraft, are long-standing in the aviation community, while others are unique to the UAP problem set. Narratives from aviators in the operational community and analysts from the military and IC dis describe disparagement associated with observing UAP, reporting it, or attempting to discuss it with colleagues. So these people are literally into some sort of a PTSD, okay? So they've experienced this firsthand. Uh, they've seen UAP that was confirmed by other sensors like radar and weapon systems and whatever. And it was disruptive, meaning it behaved in such a way that their brains could not face the reality of it. And now they're disparaged, okay? They're, they are saying that because of observing, reporting it, or attempting to discuss it with colleagues, they get high levels of stress and are hesitant in doing so. Although the effects of these stigmas have lessened as senior members of the scientific policy military and intelligence communities engage on the topic seriously in public, reputational risk may keep many observers silent, complicating scientific pursuit of the topic. The sensors mounted on US military platforms are typically designed to fulfill specific missions. As a result, those sensors are not generally suited for identifying UAP. Well, you tell me. Doesn't UAP mean unidentified? How could any type of sensor be suited for identifying something that's unidentifiable? Sensor vantage points and the number of sensors concurrently observing an object play substantial roles in distinguishing UAP from known objects and determining whether a UAP demonstrates breakthrough airspace capabilities. Optical sensors have the benefit of providing some insight into relative size, shape and structure. Radio frequency sensors provide more accurate velocity and range information. Later on, the report goes into goes on saying, but some potential patterns do emerge. Although there was wide variability in the reports and the data set, is currently too limited to allow for detailed, detailed trend or pattern analysis. There was some clustering of UAP observations regarding shape, size in particular, and particularly propulsion. So what 
they mean to say is they have no idea what what means of propulsion these UAP have, especially that what they're doing is defying the laws of physics. And to back up what I've just said about defying the laws of physics, I'm going to read from an article posted in the Daily Wire on May 17th, 2021. That's a month or so before this report came out. This was in 2021. Bombshell UFO report. U.S. military encounters UFOs every day that far exceed its tech capabilities. There's no author linked to this article. It just says the Daily Wire News staff. So, an explosive report featured on CBS News's 60 Minutes. Well, this just... <laughs> lost its credibility a bit. Whatever you see in the news and the mainstream media is fake. Anyway, featured several former U.S. military officials who talked about what the U.S. government knows about unidentified aerial phenomena, UAP, more commonly referred to as UFOs. The segment comes ahead of a report, yeah, which I just read, that the military is supposed to deliver to Congress by next month. Former Director of National Intelligence John Ratcliffe said in a recent interview that the findings will shock people because, frankly, there are a lot more sightings that have been made public. And here are some quotes from the, the 60-minute segment about uh, UAPs. So, Lou... Liu Elizondo, former U.S. military official that led the U.S. government's efforts to investigate the UAP. Imagine a technology that can do 600 to 700 G-forces, that can fly at 13,000 miles an hour, that can evade radar, and that can fly through air and water and possibly space, and oh, by the way, has no obvious signs of propulsion. This is really what irks them. No wings, no control surfaces, and yet still can defy the natural effects of Earth's gravity. That's precisely what we're seeing. I mean... 
how much more in your face could this happen? This is 2021. This isn't 47, 50, or even 60s. Elizondo on explanations for what people are witnessing. In some cases, there are simple explanations for what people are witnessing. But there are some that, well, that are not. We're not just simply jumping to a conclusion that's saying, Oh, that's a UAP out there. We're going through our due diligence. Is it some sort of a new type of cruise missile technology that China has developed? Is it some sort of high-altitude balloon that's conducting reconnaissance? Ultimately, when you have exhausted all those that, all those what-ifs, and you're still left with the fact that it, this is in our airspace and it's real, that's when it becomes compelling. And that's when it becomes problematic. Furthermore, on the same show, 60 Minutes, Ryan Graves, former Navy pilot lieutenant, on how often the U.S. military encounters UAPs on the East Coast, has said, Every day, every day for at least a couple of years. Graves on what he thinks the objects are, I would say, you know, the highest probability is it's a threat observation program. Now notice he doesn't say who's observing the threat, who's in fact the author of this threat observation program. Could it be Russia, could it be China, or could it really be an unknown species? Chris Mellon ser served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence for Presidents Clinton and George W. Bush and was on the staff of the Senate Intelligence Committee. These vehicles seem to have unlimited loiter time, which we don't have. We're limited in terms of altitude. It's hard to design something that functions well at ground level that can go 60,000 or 80,000 feet 
and then drop down to the deck or drop to 20,000 feet. And you know, and it's like a straight vertical line in seconds. Then the acceleration is beyond any, far beyond anything that we, that we are capable of. There's nothing we could build that would be strong enough to endure that amount of force and acceleration. And now returning to our preliminary assessment report that we're reading from, <laughs> amazingly, the director of the National Intelligence website. On page five, it says, UAP sightings also tended to cluster around US training and testing grounds but we assess that this may result from a collection bias as a result of focused attention, greater numbers of latest generation sensors operating in those areas, unit expectations, and guidance to report anomalies. Subtitled, and a handful of UAP appear to demonstrate advanced technology. Next paragraph. In 18... Incidents described in 21 reports. Observers reported unusual UAP movement patterns or flight characteristics. Some UAP appeared to remain stationary in winds aloft, move against the wind, maneuver abruptly, or move at considerable speed without discernment or discernible means of propulsion. In a small number of cases, military aircraft systems processed radio frequency, energy associated with UAP sightings. The UAP task force holds a small amount of data that appears to show UAP demonstrating acceleration or a degree of signature management. Additional rigorous analysis are necessary by multiple teams or groups of technical experts to determine the nature and validity of those data. We are conducting further analysis to determine if breakthrough technologies were demonstrated. Meaning breakthrough, it just means outside known physical laws. I encourage 
one and all to go and check the report for yourselves. You can find it just googling for preliminary assessment UAP or just type into Google. Uh, let me see. I typed UFO reports from US government and it was one of the first three results. You can just see the website is dni.gov, that's Director of National Intelligence, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And getting back to the subject the matter at hand, we were reading the brief history of CIA involvement into the UFO phenomena. And we were somewhere along the lines of 1952, which is an interesting year. Early CIA concerns in 1947 to 1952. CIA closely monitored the Air Force effort, aware of the mounting numbers of sightings and increasingly concerned that the UFOs might pose a potential security threat. Given the distribution of the sightings, CIA officials in 1952 questioned whether they might reflect midsummer madness. Agency officials accepted the Air Force's conclusion about UFO reports, although they concluded that since there is a remote possibility that they may be interplanetary aircraft, it is necessary to investigate each sighting. 
a massive buildup of sightings over the United States in 52, especially in July, alarmed the Truman administration. On 19 and 20 July, radar scopes at Washington National Airport and Andrews Air Force Base tracked mysterious blips. On 27 July, the blips reappeared. The Air Force scrambled interceptor aircraft to investigate, but they found nothing. The incidents, however, caused headlines across the country. The White House wanted to know. What was happening? And the Air Force quickly offered an explanation that the radar blips might be the result of temperature inversions. Later, a Civil Aeronautics Administration investigation confirmed that such radar blips were quite common and were caused by temperature inversions. Although it had monitored UFO reports for at least three years, CIA reacted to the new rash of sightings by forming a special study group within the Office of Scientific Intelligence, the OSI, and the Office of Current Intelligence, OCI, to review the situation. Edward Toss, acting chief of OSI's Weapons and Equipment Division, reported for the group that most UFO sightings could be easily explained. Nevertheless, he recommended that the agency continue monitoring the problem in coordination with ATIC. He also urged the CIA concealed its interests from the media and public in view of their probable alarmist tendencies. Quote unquote. To accept such interest and confirming the existence of UFOs. Upon receiving the report, Deputy Director of Intelligence Robert Emery Jr. assigned responsibility for the UFO investigations to OSI's Physics and Electronics Division with A. Ray Gordon as the officer in charge. Each branch of the, of the division was to contribute to the investigation and Gordon Gordon was to coordinate closely with Attic. Armory, who asked the group to focus on the national security implications of UFOs, was relaying DSI Walter Bendel Smith's concerns. Smith wanted to know whether or not the Air Force investigation of flying saucers was sufficiently objective and how much more money and manpower would be necessary to determine the cause of the small percentage of unexplained flying saucers. Smith believed, quote, There was only one chance in 10,000 that the phenomenon posed a threat to the security of the country, but even that chance 
could not be taken. End quote. According to Smith, it was CIA's responsibility by statute to coordinate the intelligence effort required to solve the problem. Smith was also wanted to know what use could be made of the UFO phenomenon in connection with US psychological warfare efforts. Led by Gordon, the CIA study group met with Air Force officials at Wright-Patterson and reviewed their data and findings. The Air Force claimed that 90% of the reported sightings were easily accounted for. The other 10% were characterized by a number of incredible reports from credible, credible observers, end quote. The Air Force rejected the theories that the sightings involved U.S. or Soviet secret weapons development or that they involved, quote-unquote, men from Mars. There was no evidence to support these concepts. The Air Force briefers sought to explain these UFO reports as the misinterpretation of known objects or little understood natural phenomena. Air Force and CIA officials agreed that outside knowledge of agency interests in UFOs would make the problem more serious. This concealment of CIA interests contributed greatly to contribute greatly to later charges of a CIA conspiracy and cover-up. Ladies and gentlemen, dear, view, dear listeners, thank you for listening to our podcast from the cusp about UFO reports. We will be back in a couple of hours with new reports. And until then, we wish you... A nice and pleasant evening. <laughs>